It is Monday, August 7th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the Fayetteville City Council has adopted a comprehensive heritage and historic preservation plan. For a city that has so many wonderful historic places, uh, in 2023 we get our very first heritage and historic preservation plan. So this is our guiding document for the next five to ten years on what kinds of activities we'll be undertaking to do historic preservation in Fayetteville. Plus, we listen again to Pryor Center archives focused on climate change, reporting done more than 20 years ago. It turns out that the Arctic is sort of the mirror to the Earth. The, uh, all the computer climate models, all the, uh, all the theories predict that whatever's going to happen to the rest of the Earth will happen first and to the greatest extent in the Arctic. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders, serving the Northwest Arkansas community since 2017. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. DrKathleenWong.com for information. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, including three tiny desk-styled concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts lead up to the Lunch All Day Mini Festival in September. Performances include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. KUAF.com backslash summer concerts for more information. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, August 7th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, an encore visit from Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We'll reach back to last August when Randy delivered archives related to climate and climate change. First, Fayetteville City Council, for the first time, has adopted a heritage and historic preservation plan. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, Fayetteville's Historic District Commission collaborated with Fayetteville's Black Heritage Preservation Commission to draft this comprehensive plan. Britton Bostick, long-range planning and special projects manager for the city of Fayetteville, walks onto the porch of a beautifully restored late 19th century home in the Washington Willow District this drizzly summer afternoon. She takes a seat on one of a half-dozen rocking chairs. In her lap, she holds a binder containing the city's new heritage and historic preservation plan. Yes, uh, so for a city that has so many wonderful historic places, uh, in 2023 we get our very first heritage and historic preservation plan. So this is our guiding document for the next five to ten years on what kinds of activities we'll be undertaking to do historic preservation in Fayetteville. And the timing couldn't be more perfect, she says. So it's important to remember that Fayetteville is 195 years old. We're getting close to our 200 year anniversary. So we have about 200 years of built structures. Because this is the first historic preservation plan, the city has seen the loss of many historic structures. Five years ago, a group of concerned residents began pressing the city to take some sort of preservation action. Planners say this new 143-page document will guide property owners to make better decisions. 
this plan is filled with illustrations, graphs, tables, and photographs, and lists strategic planning goals. It also shares Fayetteville's rich history, tracing back to First Nations, and explains the social, economic, and environmental benefits of preservation. Identifying the city's historic assets is key to preserving them, Bostick says. We have several National Register historic districts, places that are so important that they are put on a national listing with documentation, with research, with photographs. She says this plan would also require an impact report from the federal government before any new project could begin in a National Register historic district. We don't just have National Register districts, which are collections of properties. We have individually listed National Register properties as well. I think we have almost 70 of those in Fayetteville now. So that means the structure was considered important enough on its own to be listed on the national listing and to have to be considered when any federally funded projects are done. Currently, only one local historic district exists in Fayetteville, the White Hangar at Drake Field. So if you've ever been to the Air Museum down on the very south end of town, you have been to Fayetteville's one and only local historic district. Bostick says property owners can request historic protections where applicable. Fayetteville City Council just built a path in the city code to allow property owners to make such requests. So um, if you and some neighbors are concerned about your properties being protected in the long term, um, please reach out. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, But really, the only other protections that we would have is if the state had an easement on a historic property. And that would be something that would be done uh, through the state and not through the city. The document states that the National Register of Historic Places designation does not protect properties from demolition unless it is involved in a preservation project that receives federal funding, licensing, or permitting. A historic town like Eureka Springs has banned demolition of historic homes and businesses, with few exceptions, but historic property owners in Fayetteville still have the right to tear down their structures. If they have the correct demolition permit to do that work safely, um, but otherwise we don't have those protections in place currently. And part of the reason for that is not every community wants those protections, and Fayetteville's made it pretty clear in the past that they're not looking to have those. The plan does not require special permits for new paint colors, new window installations, or renovations for historic property owners. If you are going to do new construction and addition, things like that, then you'll definitely want to come visit our building safety office. But even in our historic districts, like the beautiful one that we're in, we don't have any specific regulations you would have to follow outside of the normal building code regulations and our typical zoning that we have um, across the city. Public participation has been key in drafting the plan, Bostick says, which was initiated last September. A preliminary plan was drafted and presented at several public meetings, along with an online questionnaire. The survey had more than 600 responses, which outperformed their goal. But in a city of 100,000 people, Bostick says they're still seeking input. We need to know what historic preservation looks like to Fayetteville because we are unique and we want things to be a reflection of our community's values, not just kind of a standard set that you might get from just anywhere. Bostick fielded emails and calls for this report and also connected with residents at the Fayetteville Farmers Market last May, collecting over 3,000 votes from residents on what to prioritize. 
So that was really exciting to have so much. And then people were so involved in creating this document that they actually provided copy edits for me. They would tell me where they found errors in spelling or punctuation or they thought a date was wrong. And we were able to get all of those comments incorporated into the final document. The plan is neatly organized into five sections. A link to it can be found on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. One section in particular highlights key historical properties. For example, if you've ever been on the square, you may have noticed a building on the west side. It's a white building and it has Mrs. Young stamped at the top. And you might wonder, how did a woman get her name stamped on top of a building? The history of that building is a part of women's history in Fayetteville. And it's an important part because we often don't acknowledge that women were important and usually well-resourced uh, real estate developers at the end of the 19th century. Fayetteville Historic Preservation Commission is collaborating closely with Fayetteville's Black Heritage Preservation Commission, founded in late 2021. So the commissions do meet separately every month because they do serve two separate roles. Uh, the Historic District Commission has a very uh, strong role in our certified local government status. Uh, we have to have a qualified Historic District Commission in order to be eligible and be in good standing with the program. That's how we get some really amazing grants to do historic preservation work. And and then the Black Heritage Preservation Commission focuses on elevating and highlighting and celebrating Fayetteville's Black heritage, the sites and people who are part of that very specific cultural heritage and history in Fayetteville. Fayetteville's original African-American community first settled in southeastern Fayetteville, where many descendants continue to reside in the forested Spout Spring neighborhood in particular, Situated in a valley below the historic courthouse, it was first settled by emancipated African Americans after the Civil War. DeAndre Jones, Fayetteville City Council Member Ward 1 and Council Representative to the Black Heritage Preservation Commission, says their mission is to accurately record the city's black history and document both existing and lost cultural assets. For example, he says, the commission met late last month to discuss Henderson's school, the school was founded in 1866 and accommodated young black children in the community during segregation. The conversation is still unfolding. Uh, however, you know, we did mention the historic black churches, the historic uh, St. James uh, and the St. James Methodist Church, which, which, by the way, is the longest standing African-American church in Fayetteville. And then there are some homes. There are some homes that individuals, uh, of course, lived in. And unfortunately, many of those homes don't exist. But those structures that do exist, we're certainly wanting to highlight them. Jones says the commission also plans to document historic Black-owned businesses, as well as places like the Yvonne Richardson Community Center, built in 1996 to serve Black residents in the area. And you know this, how important it is for our community to be represented and the, and, the and the history be told accurately. And history not only being told, but also being recorded and also being made available to the public in, the, in a, a manner in which we are hoping to do, and that's, as, of course, establishing a historic district in South Fayetteville. Under diversity, equity, and inclusion historic preservation parameters, some of the first LGBTQ plus heritage sites in Fayetteville will also be documented. Again, city historic planner Britton Bostick. Those places don't always last. 
Uh, sometimes the places change or they're remodeled or they might even be demolished, but it doesn't mean those places are not important to the memory of that part of our community and their cultural identity. Bostic says this ambitious newly adopted historic preservation plan was made possible with grant support with the city council giving $20,000, part of a matching grant of $50,000. I mentioned that the Historic District Commission is important for our certified local government status. That status helps us to apply for grants every year, and we were able to get a $50,000 grant through having that status and having that relationship to do this project. Fayetteville's first-ever Historic Preservation Plan is supported by the Historic Preservation Fund, administered by the National Park Service Department of the Interior and the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program, an agency of the Division of Arkansas Heritage. Bostic says she welcomes more feedback and involvement from the community on this living document. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And you can keep up with all the stories and interviews on Ozarks by signing up for our free Ozarks at Large newsletter. Each weekday morning, you'll receive all the stories from the previous Daily Show, plus the KUAF Daily Word Game, and top stories from NPR, all in one free newsletter. Sign up at KUAF.com. University of Arkansas political science professor Patrick Stewart recently published a book examining the 2016 and 2020 presidential primary debates. The book focuses on the role played by the studio audience during debates through their applause, cheering, laughter, and booing of candidates, and how this affects reporters and everyone watching at home. Our debates are the one time during the electoral cycle that we're able to take a look at our candidates and get an unbiased look at who they are. They're not stage managed, they aren't preformed, they aren't already edited into a specific sort of marketing brand during the debates. We get to see them and how they react to questions and to comments in real time. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill. Listen at KUAF.com, at arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. The effort to place a possible repeal of the Arkansas Learns Act in front of voters did not get enough signatures. Arkansas Secretary of State John Thurston says the campaign was at least 978 valid signatures shy of the required number. He says the group collecting signatures, Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students, also fell just short of the now required 3% representation of voters in 50 different counties. Arkansas Children's will use its largest donation ever to further expand its Northwest Arkansas services. The Willard and Pat Walker Charitable Foundation announced at the annual Gala of Hope that it was giving its largest single gift ever, $25 million to Arkansas Children's. Marcy Doderer, the president and CEO of Arkansas Children's, says half of the gift will be used to expand the Springdale Hospital to be able to treat more children with serious diagnoses and injuries. So in order to do that, though, we need more space. We need different equipment. We need more providers and more people. So the expansion isn't just square footage. It's also expansion of the team members adding a lot of new employees to the team over the next few years and very specifically recruiting more physicians. Mandy Mackey, the executive director of the Willard and Pat Walker Charitable Foundation, says the gift continues the legacy of Pat Walker. Mackey says Pat Walker was a huge cheerleader for the children of the state. 
It didn't matter if they were children in her neighborhood, her own grandchildren, children at her um, church. She really cared. Pat really cared about the children of Northwest Arkansas. And she was a big supporter of Arkansas Children's um, in Little Rock and was excited about the plans for Arkansas Children's Northwest. In honor of the gift, the Arkansas Children's Northwest Campus will be named the Pat Walker Campus. We'll have more about the gift and the expansion plans on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. The CDC is warning that COVID-19 infections may be seeing another rise this summer, reporting that nationwide hospital admissions rose in July by 12 percent. 700 new cases of COVID were reported in Arkansas last week with 15 new hospitalizations. The Washington County Jail also reported last week that 42 detainees tested positive. Dr. Robert Hopkins, a professor of internal medicine pediatrics for the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, says it's hard to know the true number of infections currently. The challenge that we have is that testing is at a far lower rate than it has been uh, also. Part of that is that, you know, home tests is not reported, but I think many have gone down the route and said that, uh, you know, I've heard, well, the pandemic's over. I've heard it's not an issue. And I think that's at least somewhat a limitation that is skewing our data. Hopkins also says that mass immunity may be waning in part because of less frequent testing and lower vaccination rates. He says if you're experiencing cough, nasal congestion, fever or achiness, you should be tested for COVID. He also says staying up to date on the vaccines is important, especially with a new one expected this fall. We have three manufacturers, Novavax, Moderna and Pfizer, that are all working on developing the vaccine for this fall, which will be based on the XBB.1.5 variant. Once the initial trials are done, FDA will evaluate it and approve its use. And then sometime later on this fall, Late this month or in September, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will make recommendations on use of that vaccine. 358 Arkansans so far this year have died from complications due to COVID-19, most in January. You can find a link to the weekly data from the Arkansas Department of Health on OzarksAtLarge.com. Last week, a lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of Arkansas to block Act 629, which broadly bans the growth, sale, and possession of several Delta THC products. The plaintiffs in the suit claim the law conflicts with the 2018 federal farm bill, which legalized agricultural hemp across the U.S. Abden Metazadigan with Hall Booth Smith in Little Rock is among five attorneys challenging Act 629. The law is unconstitutional because it violates preempted federal law and because it uh, is so poorly drafted that a person of ordinary intelligence would have a very difficult time understanding what the law even means. He says Arkansas lawmakers could have specifically banned sales of Delta THC products in Arkansas. He claims the law criminalizes Arkansas's hemp industry because Delta THC products are synthesized from hemp. The law will destroy farming in Arkansas because overnight it turned farmers into felons, partially in our view because the way the law was drafted. It would even go so far as to make CBD itself illegal. Under Act 629, CBD, another common ingredient in cannabis that is not intoxicating, as well as medicinal CBD, can be seized by law enforcement. U.S. District Court Judge Billy Roy Wilson has until tomorrow, August 8th, to respond to the lawsuit's motion for a temporary restraining order. Fourteen states so far have banned or limited sales of Delta THC products. It turns out that the Arctic 
is sort of the mirror to the earth. The, uh, all the computer climate models, all the, uh, all the theories predict that whatever's gonna happen to the rest of the earth will happen first and to the greatest extent in the Arctic. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Monday to you, Randy Dixon. Thank you. Same to you, Kyle. Randy is with the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. What did we just hear? Well, that was actually an interview from 25 years ago. I can't believe it's been 25 years. But that was a scientist with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, 25 years ago, I went to... Barrow, Alaska. You cannot get much further. No, that is the highest point in yeah. in America. Yeah. Um, it's about 350 miles above the Arctic Circle. And we went in January, and it was cold. <laughs> but, all right, you think about it, uh, 25 years ago, um, I, I took our chief meteorologist, Ned Permy, up to do a series of reports on what was new at the time, global warming. And uh, like I said, we went up in January. It was really cold. Well, we get off the plane, get in the car, and this was the forecast that we heard on the radio. Elsewhere, mainly north winds, 10 to 20 miles per hour. Temperatures falling to between 10 and 20 below. Tonight, continued quite windy in Attigan Pass with blowing snow and wind chills to 80 below. You know, the first few seconds you go, well, okay, that's cold. But then you hear about the blowing snow and the wind chills. You go, oh, oh, that's 80 deadly. below. Yeah, that's deadly. Yeah, and I'm thinking, this. why are we here? Um, <laughs> it was your idea, though, right? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Um, so anyway, we, we get up there, and uh, we'll get into to some of the challenges we had. But here's just a snippet of an on-camera portion of Ned Permy's report. It's 12 noon, just before sunrise at the Arctic Circle. Wind chill factor, I can't describe it, 60 below zero. And everything behind me looks like a big snow field. It's actually water. It's the Arctic Ocean, and I'm standing on it. And you can nine months out of the year. On the ocean. Yeah. Standing on the ocean. At that time, at least, you could do nine months a year. Yes. Yeah, I wow. mean, and the only way you could get there is fly in. You couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't go by water because there was no water. It was all, wow. it was all frozen over. But you know, this being 1997, the idea of global warming was fairly new. Um, so we wanted to show, you know, the work and the research that was going on up there, um, and also how what their studies would affect the uh, the weather down here in Arkansas. I talked to Ned last week and asked him to, to just kind of reflect on the significance of that trip and that series of reports. The word was out that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was beginning to test environmental and climate change um, and the one place that they were looking to test this was in the Arctic regions, because that's in the Arctic regions. That's where you really start to see if there's a shift or a change in ice production, ice manufacturing, whatever you will, um, whether there's change from year to year in the ice belt 
in the Arctic Circle area. It's not a trip you forget, is it? Oh, no. <laughs> no. So, so how long were you there? We were there uh, just about a week. That's but, a- you know, it took pretty much two days of travel sure. to get there. Because sure. we had to fly Little Rock, uh, I believe it was to Denver, to Seattle, to Anchorage, to Juneau, and then a small plane up to Barrow. So it was it was quite a trek. So when you are there, after you've arrived there, what do you do? Well, first of all, we, we got checked into the only hotel, which was called the Top of the World Hotel. And um, I had been in contact with these NOAA weather people. They had two stations up there, but... We spent the day at uh, the Maine Weather Bureau in Barrow with the station chief, and his name was Dan uh, Enders. And uh, here he is gathering atmospheric samples that they would they would collect every day and ended up back then sending them off to be tested. What we're going to do here is open these bottles under a vacuum and suck in some air, and then we send it off to our lab in Boulder, and they analyze it for carbon dioxide, which is important for the greenhouse effect. And the greenhouse effect is what may determine how, how hot the temperatures get. Um, it's sort of like throwing an extra blanket on your bed at night to stay warm. Again, this is from work you did 25 years ago, 1997. You're talking about climate change and uh, global warming, and you're talking to this fellow who works for NOAA. Right. And so we wanted to know um, what he was doing there and what kind of effects it, it might have in the future. In the early 70s, it was decided that with all the increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the increasing methane and the increasing freons, that something needed to be done to measure how these levels were changing. And the Arctic is an ideal place to measure these changes. Um, a lot of the computer programmers decided that the Arctic was like a mirror to the rest of the uh, world as far as climate. What happens to the rest of the world will happen here first and to the largest extent. Um, increased carbon dioxide will lead to an increase in the greenhouse effect, which is the warming because the carbon dioxide gets into the atmosphere and builds up, it lets the sunlight come in and warm the earth up, but it will not let the heat escape back out. And that warms up the atmosphere, which warms up the earth, melts the ice cap, we'll have rising sea levels. Um, Plants will probably end up growing further north than they used to. Um, Arkansas probably won't be able to grow the kind of crops they grow now. Cotton's big there. Cotton may end up being grown in Kansas and Michigan. Arkansas may end up being in the banana belt if these if these increases happen the way some people predict. I know that f- in preparing this week's Prior Center Profiles for us, Randy Dixon, you called back that station in Barrow, where you were 25 years ago. Yes. Um, now, Dan has retired, but I did talk to the current station chief. His name is Brian Thomas. And so I wanted him to kind of update me on... Uh, what's happened since we were there 25 years ago. The changes are accelerating in that um, back when you spoke to Dan, there was still a lot of 
speculation about what climate change was going to be like, right, and what what the science was pointing toward as possible consequences or possible conditions that would be caused by what we're observing if the trends were to continue. And um, what, what we're noticing now is that, um, you know, this is, this is in it. We're in it, right? This is happening now. The, the changes that were sort of predicted or, or considered to be likely, um, they're now actually, they're happening, right? Um, we have much reduced sea ice, and when we have less sea ice, then we have more ocean heating, right? Uh, and then this is a positive feedback where the warmer ocean then has less ice in it. And so then it warms faster. And so uh, warmer ocean, more energy in the ocean then gives more energy to the atmosphere. So you have more energy in the ocean for storms, more energy in the atmosphere for storms. In general, we have more erosion on the coastlines here in, in Alaska and Arctic than we have in the past. So there's, there's definitely things that we can see happening right now. So you've seen it firsthand. We do, and we've seen it, we've seen it now for years, right? This is not a new thing. This is something that, um, that we've been seeing. Um, and it's not, it's not something that is very surprising in terms of um, the science pointed toward it, but um, but living it, you know, and, and and seeing it happen is is different. 1997, 25 years ago, was before an inconvenient truth that film oh, by uh, Al Gore. Yeah, almost 15 years. Wow. So it came out almost 10 years ago, but we were there long before that. So um, when it came out, it well, have you seen it? I have. I saw it when it came out, but I haven't seen it since. It's pretty scary. Yeah. So, um, well, and let's just listen to a clip from, you know, Al Gore it won an Academy Award, and here's, here's a little bit from An Inconvenient Truth. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. This is what would happen in Florida, around Shanghai, home to 40 million people. The area around Calcutta, 60 million. Here's Manhattan, the World Trade Center. So now the, the vice president is still leading this cause. Uh, he's formed a nonprofit group called the Climate Reality Project. Um, it, it urges immediate action to reverse what it calls, you know, a global crisis. Um, I, I talked to um, Al Gore's chief of staff uh, last week, and she was she was very nice. She tried to hook me up with Al Gore, and uh, he was not available because of the the bill that was just signed, oh, or the act, right. the, the the reduction act and uh, inflation reduction. And uh, they're very busy working on that, and there's some sort of worldwide symposium. She also tried to get me hooked up with the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, and she wasn't available. But um, I did talk to the other side, of course, to be balanced yes. uh, and fair. 
But, you know, there are scientists out there that um, believe that this climate change isn't necessarily all man-made and uh, is reversible. Uh, I talked to uh, Dr. David Legates, who is a retired professor at the University of Delaware and is a research fellow at the Independent Institute. And I asked him about what he thought of Gore's organization and specifically that documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Well, I, I follow it very little, um, given the fact that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, in my view, really science. It's more uh, political science, if you will. And so they're, they've got an agenda to set, and it's not to get the best science on the ground. Um, and Ian Vegan Truth demonstrated that, that it wasn't about science. It was about scaring people into action. You saying it's a lot of hype? Uh, yeah, that's a polite way of putting it, yeah. Dr. Gates has firm opinions. Yes, he does. And certainly ones that the Climate Project people would strongly disagree with. And we should point out the majority of climate scientists yes. would disagree with, yes. Yes. Uh, but Gates was part of the Trump administration uh, as far as climate. He, he was one of the advisors. And he contributed to a book uh, titled Hot Talk, Cold Science, Global Warming's Unfinished Debate. Uh, so I then posed this question to Dr. Legates about scientists uh, who say we're running out of time. So a lot of scientists are saying, you know, we're reaching a point of no return and it's dire. And are, are they crying wolf? I, my argument is I think they are. Um, I don't see dramatic climate change. I mean, we look at hurricanes, you look at tornadoes, you look at a number of things, and once you account for the changing observational bias, you get that there's lots of variability, uh, but no long-term trends. Uh, same with heat waves, same, you know. And so the, the issue becomes that uh, we have lots of variability in climate. We go through warm periods, cold periods, wet periods, dry periods. Um, but nevertheless, that climate varies. Uh, we happen to be in a warmer period right now, uh, in part due, as I said, to human activity through land use change, through carbon dioxide uh, effects, but also uh, the sun has become a little more intense, and so it's part natural, part human-induced, uh, but not disastrous and not heading towards this somehow magic tipping point that we get to a place where we got to run away, fireball earth. All right, Dr. Legates uh, was at the University of Delaware. We've heard from him. Let's go back to Barrow, Alaska, where NOAA scientist Brian Thomas is, and you talked to him. Yes, um, and he, he talked about, you know, the natural weather cycles uh, and trends, and this is what he had to say. So our data doesn't show a cycle um, our data shows a trend that has been happening for the last 49 years since we've been observing it here, mm -hmm. um, and the trend is in one direction, right? There's there's no cycle. So on, on a longer time scale, you know, are are there cycles in in the Earth system? Yes, but the question is whether the changes that we're observing are part of that longer cycle or if they're um, effects that are happening on a shorter cycle because of 
human activity. I want to go back 25 years now because I want to know okay. a little bit more about your experiences okay. in Barrow, Alaska. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was, I guess, a trip of a lifetime. Yeah. Now, um, I, so I've been to Iceland, which yes. is south of Barrow, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, just only a little part of northern Iceland is above the Arctic Circle. Right. And I went in the summer when it never got dark. You're there in January in Barrow. Did, it, did you ever see light? Well, uh, a little bit. It was light about two hours a day, but it was like dusk. And I had this horrible uh, experience on the flight from Juneau to Barrow. There was a a pilot on the plane, uh, not flying it, but was a passenger. And um, he started talking to us about what we were doing because he saw the TV gear. And uh, I told him we were going up to do some television reports. And he said, well, good luck with that, because it's dark 24 hours a day up there right now. And it scared me to death that we were going to spend a week in total darkness. And, I mean, my career flashed before my eyes because I didn't think we would get much video. So you're not scared of the dark. You're scared of spending a lot of KATV's money to go up and not get... And not get much of anything. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, understand. our lights could not... Penetrate. I <laughs> yeah, got you. the tundra. I got you. Or, you know, the, the, the Arctic Ocean that had frozen over. Fortunately, it, it was light about two hours a day, mm. and um, but it never got completely light. It was sort of like dusk. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that two hours. But I talked to Ned, and he sort of describes our initial experience there. It's just such a vast expanse up there in that part of the world. People just don't realize how barren it is, especially in the wintertime. All right, so that's a conversation you had with Ned Permy recently. Last week, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, while we were there, we also wanted to, to kind of make it personal and find out what it was like to live there, because there are several thousand people who, who live in the town. So we got together with a group of people in one of the few local restaurants. By the way, it was called Arctic Pizza. And um, <laughs> Ned talked to them about, you know, life there and then how they cope with the darkness. Tell me some of the fun things that you all do here. I mean, darkness, and then I guess uh, in the summertime, what are some of the great things you do during dark? And, and oh. so, anybody can jump in. I'll swing the mic. <laughs> well, the fun thing is to meet people like this. <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet here, but uh, summertime, a phenomenal amount of birds come up to the to the tundra to nest, and it's that's that's pretty interesting. And also in the spring and fall, there's whaling that happens here, and that's also very exciting. How about in the wintertime? In the winter, there's skiing. It's absolutely beautiful to watch the ocean freeze and the ice come and go and the light and the different phenomena, the northern lights and the storms, <laughs> and lots of socializing and eating. We were there just in time for one of the big, big activities, and um, I asked Ned to, to kind of pick up that story. The citizens up there, they get very excited when the sun starts to come back, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. And they were celebrating at the time we were up there by having, I think, what they called Race for the Sun. Yeah. Uh, it, it was like a big 5K race. And I think everybody in town 
got involved in it one way or the other. And it was 20 below zero. It, it was. It was. Wow. Um, yeah, so, we're far, we're, so we go up there not expecting to cover a 5K race. <laughs> I think that's legit. That you wouldn't that wouldn't be on your radar? Yeah, and so we're trying to figure out. All right, it's forty below or twenty below. You know, when when you've got those kind of numbers, it doesn't really matter. Um, you. So I've got in the SUV, and our photographer Larry Potter got in the back and opened up the back, and we started shooting video with the racers and he actually did an impromptu interview with one of them out the back of the car why in the world do you do something like this slow down randy well i don't know if you're a runner i guess you have to run when you can and for the most part it's not so bad my feet get kind of cold it's so my hands. I love this guy. He's like, ah, it's fine. Well, and my hands get cold. My, my feet, feet get, get cold. cold. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, horrible. he was bundled up. They were all bundled well, up. They'd have to. I mean, you have to be. Yes. It's dangerous if you're not. Right. Right. Okay. Um, but I remember the signs all over town that said, beware of polar bears. And it says, uh, do not leave children unattended. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, I mean, they're just polar bears wandering around. They were telling me that a guy had gone out on a on an ice, you know, what are they called? Flow? Uh, Jet ski type oh. thing. Uh, but That sounds horrible. Well, but he had gone out, and um, they never heard from him again. They, they found his jet ski, and they assumed oh that a polar bear had chased okay. him down and grabbed him off of it. Oh, my. Yeah. God, I never want to go to this place. Yeah. A couple other little trivial things. Uh, liquor is outlawed there. Oh, I'm out. I'm, the polar bears had me reconsidering, but if liquor <laughs> is outlawed, I am not going to barrel yeah. Alaska. And there's the Aurora Borealis. Now that. Did you see the Northern Lights? Yes. Oh, my and goodness. we, um, well, I would always travel with my Nikon. And, you know, 25 years ago, I was shooting film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there weren't digital cameras. And, uh, yeah, that was a whole nother problem we ran into because you would go out in that kind of weather and sud- you know, immediately your batteries would go dead. Mm-hmm. So it, I guess it didn't really matter that it was only light two hours a day. We could only shoot for about 30 minutes and we'd have to recharge our batteries. But I really wanted a picture of the Aurora Borealis, which, way. yeah, and you know, you take a time exposure and but we also wanted to get video well what and this was my idea i'll admit it it was really stupid but ned will tell the story about what we did our last night there what we wanted to do was to go out and um and and see the aurora borealis firsthand ourselves and so we left the hotel not really thinking about the ramifications of it but we left at night and we began driving to get away from the lights of town so that we could see it really really well and so we kept driving and driving and driving and i don't know we probably didn't go that many miles but the thing is we were just in such an abandoned wasteland area 
And like you said, signs out there, beware of polar bears. Well, what I realized, and I remember that I was the one that said this while you and our photographer, Larry Potter, were in the car with me and we were driving away from town and it was like 60 below zero. And we got to the point where we could see the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis really well. And we wanted to stop the car and begin to film and to photograph. But I realized if you shut this car off and it does not start again, we're dead. Mm -hmm. I really believe that we could have, that could have been our demise. I have to say, Randy Dixon, I'm glad that Ned Permy knew you at that stage in your career where you could convince him to go do these things. I'm glad I know you at this stage where you just come to my studio. Well, and I'll say to heck with it. I'll stay home and watch it on TV. Yeah. Wow. What a. But I got a great picture. There you go. And um, yeah, it ended up being a really great trip and a great series of reports. It was very informative. and, And I. Not to brag, but I think it was kind of cutting edge to do it back then. Well, yeah. So you would Ned do his forecast live from there? Would no. you use a sound? Okay. So you just recorded everything and brought it back. Right. Okay. Right. But And we did several weather-related things over the gotcha. years. We, we studied lightning. We went out to New Mexico. Uh, we, we studied wind at, uh, I think, Texas Tech. So we, okay. Ned did a lot of... Uh, Cool. Things other than stand in front of a chroma key wall. I like it. I like it. Thanks so much for sharing this. No, I loved it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me, you know, take a stroll down memory lane. This is better than a slideshow, i got to tell you. <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You'll be back next week. Yes, sir. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we're already thinking about elections. In part, because there's a chance your name could be removed from the voter roll this year before the next election. And you walk in and you may be feeling a little nervous or intimidated anyway, and then they go, nah, you're not on the list. I mean, that's, you know, people may never come back if that happens. We'll hear more about voter roll maintenance in Arkansas and some of the inconsistencies of the process tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. Louis Jordan of Brinkley was a vocalist, saxophonist, band leader, and even acted in early prototypes of music video. His innovative music spawned more than 50 chart hits. In fact, for eight years throughout the 1940s, Louis Jordan's records were so popular, his songs held the number one spot for a combined 113 weeks. That adds up to more than two years total, with a Louis Jordan song on top. And possibly more important than Jordan's chart success is his influence. Those considered innovators in rock and roll, blues, R&B, and more were all given their cues by Louis Jordan. Chuck Berry, B.B. King, Ray Charles, James Brown, Sonny Rollins, Bo Diddley, and many more. But as the genres he helped spawn gained distinction by the mid-1950s, rock and R&B hits were hard to come by for Louis Jordan. Following his more than 15-year association with Decca Records, Louis Jordan had recorded for a handful of labels. Jordan sold and made millions for DECA, which would eventually become the huge media conglomerate MCA Universal. 
Through the 1950s and 60s, Jordan had recorded for Mercury, Aladdin, RCA Victor, and even Ray Charles' short-lived Tangerine records, among others. By the end of the 1960s, Jordan found himself on a newly formed label, Pizzazz. Their slogan, put some pizzazz in your jazz. Based in California, Pizzazz was formed by Louisiana native Paul Gayton, who, like Jordan, was a former band leader. The two had known each other for decades. Recording with the 14-piece orchestra, Jordan got started with a couple of singles in fall of 1968. A seasonal song called Santa Claus, Santa Claus got some attention, but unfortunately wasn't able to be released until nearly mid-December. Another single, New Orleans and a Rusty Old Horn, heard here, also got some radio play and became a latter-day concert favorite. Louis Jordan often pointed to that song as a strong example of his post-Decca Records period. Somewhat confusingly, Louis Jordan's full-length pizzazz album is called One-Sided Love, Then Saka to Me, an apparent reference to the opening songs on either side of the album. Sammy Davis Jr. wrote the album's liner notes. Davis doesn't mention it, but he got his first breaks in the music business as opening act for Louis Jordan when Davis was dancing with the Will Maston trio. Davis does in his notes call Louis Jordan possibly the greatest hit maker of all time and the original soul brother. Martha Jordan, Louis' wife, appears on the album as she sang and danced in her husband's stage show. They married in 1966. Ironically, Martha had been also romantically involved with Sammy Davis Jr. at one time, and in her 2005 autobiography, says Davis asked her to marry him, but she said no. Davis doesn't mention any of that either. Martha Jordan is also featured on the album cover with Louis, both dressed in traditional oriental garb, an apparent reference to the song Sakatumi and Jordan's recent tours through Asia and Japan. You can hear some of the pair's routine here on the song, I'll Get Along Somehow. We went to Vegas and you had an eight-spot keto for 25 grand. You added me two bills and sent me home. I didn't see you no more until you got broke. And then you wanted the two bills back. But now, baby, stop singing the blues. I should never have gone down to Arkansas and got you out of that podcast. I've got a name that everybody knows. Soccer to me. In terms of album sales, none of the effort did much good. Santa Claus, Santa Claus became the song with the most chart action, but because of its seasonal nature, didn't even make the album. New Orleans on a Rusty Old Horn became a latter period favorite of both Jordan and his fans. And Jordan's version of the instrumental song Bullet may surpass the one found on the 1968 original film soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin. Louis Jordan later complained that the three different musical arrangers on the album each wanted him to sing in a different way. They wouldn't let me sing like I wanted to sing, Jordan said. That's not the way to treat an artist, so it wasn't really successful. Paul Gayton retired in the 1970s and Pizzazz Records folded. Still, the material, like most of Jordan's later work, stands shoulder to shoulder with his classic hits. Louis Jordan died on February 4, 1975, in Los Angeles, California, never having regained his chart dominance, but continuing to craft quality sounds until the end. And, more than 100 years after his birth, his incredible influence is still being tallied. Here in its entirety is Louis Jordan on Pizzazz Records from 1968 with The Amen Corner. Hypocrites who stay up all night, Saturday night, partying, drinking, and gambling, and can on, and, 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 and get home just in time for the meeting. You see them every Sunday morning, see them creep through the door, 
You see him stepping high and easy Cross the squeaks in the floor Yeah, when the preachers start praying You hear them all saying amen They say you want to go to heaven Hear old Gabriel, bro They want to hear the angels They're not ready to go And while the preachers pray I still hear them say amen He said now stay Sisters and brothers You must love each other, amen And you must live by the Bible And cast away all of your sins And when he's taking up collection There is no speculation You see him digging in their pockets There is no hesitation And when he kneels down again You can hear them all saying amen He says now sisters and brothers You must love each other, amen collection there is no speculation you see him digging in the pockets there is no hesitation and when he kneels down again you can hear them all saying amen Musical pioneer Louis Jordan of Brinkley in Monroe County with The Amen Corner from his 1968 album One-Sided Love, Then Sock It To Me on Pizzazz Records. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old Statehouse Museum in downtown Little Rock where they still play it loud. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Waldron. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Our show was produced inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Uh, Saturday, I went to Walker Park in Fayetteville. They unveiled the new and one yeah. uh, basketball court. Talked to the artists. We'll have that on sometime later this week. But yeah. a good good crowd, especially because it was thundering and uh-huh. it was about to let loose of rain, but a lot of people took advantage of the free shoes and free basketballs. It looks really cool. It is it really cool. Great. So that'll be on sometime later this week. Yeah. If you ever miss something we uh, talk about here on the show, you ever come in at you know halfway through the show and say, oh, what did they talk about earlier? Don't worry, we got you covered. You can go to ozarksatlarge.com, find a list of all of the shows, all of the stories we cover, ozarksatlarge.com. Hey, thanks for listening. Back tomorrow. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering a variety of amenities and living options, including apartments, cottages, and village homes. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures from Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Annie Leibovitz at Work opens September 16th, 
More at crystalbridges.org.